the glory forever. Amen. Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Bobby, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, This sermon is the first part of a two-part summer series for me um, during the summer, and each will stand on its own, but um, schedules were kind of changed, and so there's going to be a week in between. So I will finish this two weeks from now, and so hopefully you'll be able to join us then, but if not, it'll always be online, right? And so... um, The title of today's sermon is Broken Cisterns and Living Water. And so I'll be addressing the broken cisterns and then the second part in two weeks. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed exchange their glory for that which does not benefit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and two hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, would you have endless mercy upon me, a sinner, and those that have walked into this room carrying burdens and baggage that is inexpressible, feeling lost and empty and broken, or even just numb, numb to your word. Would you break through? Would you meet with them? Would you love them by your truth and your presence in this holy ground? And would they walk away hopeful, delighting in your presence? We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the outline of today's sermon will go this way. First... You and I are made for love. What kind of love? All-consuming, enrapturing love. Two, broken cisterns are other lovers, as God would describe it, as those that we give our hearts to when we weren't made for that. And third is what now? Knowing this truth, how do we go forth and live our lives? So, Let's begin by looking at Jeremiah chapter 3, which comes shortly after chapter 2, where we read that text about what's going on in our hearts. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1 states this. If a man divorces his wife, and this is God talking to Israelites and what's happening with them, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? And the question has an answer already inside, expecting a no. Would not that land be greatly polluted? That means their marriage is already polluted. You have played the harlot. I I can't say that word, so I replaced it with harlot. With many lovers. And would you return to me? 
declares the Lord. God addresses his people Israel, and often it's in reference to being a husband and a wife. And this metaphor is consistently used from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible to describe how he feels about you and how you should see the relationship that he has with you. Just a chapter before, he addresses where the heart was and where the relationship was before this and what happens in chapter 2 in description Chapter 2, verse 1 says, this is tender. I remember the devotion of your youth. When you were young and you were in love, your love as a bride. How you followed me into the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel, you were holy to me, set apart the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it, other than himself, incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. And so you can see God, a lover, describing how he is loved by this tender love and saying, if anyone else tried to get into that love and get in the way of that love, I will destroy them. So how do we go from these tender words of lovers found in chapter 2 to what we just did in chapter 3? This brokenness, this giving away to another lover, and the word God himself uses for the people of Israel? Harlot. And you read it, so you know what I'm saying. How does Israel go from crying out to God for salvation and deliverance, receiving that from God and entering into the promised land only to voluntarily be enslaved again, but this time not of a powerful nation, but within their heart, a bondage to idolatry and sin, which is more deceptive because no one can see it. They could look like the people of God, and yet they're enslaved just as much as when they were in Egypt. Ultimately, he describes it as them forgetting me, forgetting his lover, giving their heart away to other gods of foreign nations was to him adultery, and he describes it that way. How could they so easily forget what God had done for them to restore them from Genesis all the way through, talking about how he would have to sacrifice his only begotten son, the true, endless love, the obedient son to bring us to him. But in the same way, we are also being made aware that we all, every single one of us in this room, have a tendency to see God in our need and especially suffering. If you look at the chart of your life, it is usually when you're suffering, usually when you're not getting what you want, usually when you need a job, usually when you're sick and you can't fix yourself and the doctors can't fix it, you begin to see God because it is outside of your control. So he is saying... Israelites were the same, seeking me and crying out to me. But as soon as I relieved them, as soon as I brought them into the promised land, they began drifting away. Oftentimes, old school preachers, when I was growing up, used to call these sleepy Christians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, those who have been lulled to sleep, that they are dull in their senses and that their ears are itchy, 
to have their ears tickled instead of their heart convicted. That they desire to affirm the life that they are already currently living instead of asking God to transform it, convict it, and bring them to a place where they long for God even more. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says this, For the time is coming when my people will not endure sound teaching but have itchy years that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's kind of talking about podcasts and picking your favorite preachers. We now have access to listen to the greatest preachers of our time and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths that will support where they are. We have seen this text as a warning. We have to see ourselves in the same state as the Israelites. It is a repeating cycle for God's people. Once the crisis is over, once the suffering is done, once what they want is in hand, they begin to drift from God. God, I want a child. God, I want to be married. God, I want to have this job. God, will you give it to me? Will you help me get it? And once you have it, then all of a sudden you start drifting away. This is a cycle for all of us that are sitting in this room. All of us will say, this pastor, this church, this person, this word of God, this is what I like. And what God is saying is be careful when you're only listening to a voice that agrees with your voice. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 Behold, the days are coming, and this is before the 400-year silence when God's people just didn't hear from God, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek for the word of the Lord. And this is the scariest part of this text. Maybe in the whole Bible. They shall not find it. Here's a warning that God gives to people who are continually going to give their heart to idolatry and walk away from the lover of their soul and continue to mount up a heart that says, I want to hear what tickles my ears and what affirms my own voice and will not challenge it. And you continue down that path, your heart will get harder and eventually down the road, you will not hear from me. Not because I am not there, but because your heart has become hard The warning to God's people is not that he will send some kind of suffering because he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'll give you famine, I'll give you that, because most of the time when hard times come, we turn. But he says there will come a time when you will be so full of idolatry and satisfying your own desires that you will want to hear God's word and you will not hear it. You will start going from place to place to hear and you won't. How sad is the picture in Amos 8 and the warning so shocking. 
that you want it and you won't hear it. Think about this. Why is it that 20 to 70 people can go on the exact same retreat, conference, a mission trip, or attend the same church for decades together, and one person will walk away week after week, moved, maybe weeping in the presence of God because of how they failed their families, their children, how they lived in pride, and how they collected idols, and they will desire grace for their soul from God. And another person who is at the exact same retreat, exact same mission field, attending the same church, worshiping the same songs, and listening to the same message will become all the more disinterested, all the more hardened to the same text, their heart getting harder and harder. It's scary when you and I become okay with that. It's devastating is what God is saying, is that you love hearing your own voice so much that you become desensitized and hardened to God's word. Matthew chapter 15 describes prophet Isaiah's warning to to the Israelites who are becoming hardened by their idols and then Jesus reaffirming what he said and then following through. He's here. He is now saved and he's going to die for our sins and he's going to restore Israel back to him by his life, death, and resurrection. And he says this as a warning in Matthew 15. This people honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain. It's useless to me. Do they worship me? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. Meaning what they think to themselves. Because the God that they worship is themselves. And so it will never be challenged. And he called to the people to him and said to them, I need you to hear. Jesus is pleading and saying, I need you to understand. It is not about what comes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth from the heart that this is what defiles a person. The warning is subtle, but it is deep, and it will kill us eventually. The hardened heart that refuses the love that we were created for. So getting to such a point of hardened and apathetic state of being, being sleepy Christians, a hard-hearted Christian is something God addresses from Genesis all the way through. And he's saying, I need you to pay attention. Don't let your heart harden. Because you were created for love, to be tender, to be drawn, to be swept up by this love. Why does this happen? Why do we so easily drift into sleep and the dullness of heart? God's description of Israel and Jeremiah is not one of the Lord God who is disappointed in his followers. In the Bible, God never talks like, oh man, I told you to do this and you're not doing it. I don't like it. I'm going to punish you. He always speaks in this language of a lover, right? 
but it's a description of a lover who's been cheated on. The description here is a lot like the look of a healthy marriage that will show up well, like on social media. The beach trips, the vacations, the foodie places, like all the things that make it look like, man, this marriage is great, but without the substance of a great marriage. Describes it as lip service, almost as saying pictures that look good and say all the right things to everyone in the world. But their heart, the person who is posting, they are consumed with themselves, how they look, the approvals they get. They're giving once again into idolatry, and the very person standing next to them in those pictures, their heart is actually far from the lover that they stand next to. How powerful is that imagery of happiness portrayed and yet a chasm between their love. The reference is so relatable because from singles, every single single Bridges member, I love you guys, I know, you know, you are all longing to fall in love, be consumed by love, I get it, I was there, and the bliss of marriage that maybe some of you young couples have entered into, you're like, I get to live with my best friend forever, you know, and you eat late at night together, until you step on the scale and you're like, okay, no more, right? And then the reality of the brokenness after, when everything sinks in and you go, man, where did all the fun go? Can we go back to that? Because it is how he wants to help us feel and see what he's experiencing with his people. You sitting in this pew right now as you're worshiping him. It is not a relationship of transaction. He's not saying, come in here every Sunday, give your offering, raise your hand, and say words. Serve the church. He is saying, I don't care about all that. All that is a result of your affection for me and my affection for you. If the heart is missing, then everything else doesn't matter. The way that he desires and wants you to relate to him is the reason why he uses the verbiage and the language of a lover who is heartbroken when you pursue other lovers. It is a love that is all-consuming. Like, you have to ask yourself, why do you cry when you watch that Korean drama, Good Bad Mother, right? Like, Napunoma, right? Like, Like, why do you weep every episode? Because the love of that mother who is willing to say, do anything for her son, even come off as an evil mother who is coming down on her son who she loves and would do anything for. It's an all-consuming love from a parent to a child, and you weep with it. Like, why do you, on social media, watch a stranger's engagement video and cry? You don't know them. They don't know you exist. 
But you sit there and you cry, then you send it to other people, watch this, and they cry, and a million people cry together watching the same engagement video. Why do you and I watch a grandfather hold his wife's hand, whom he's been married to 50, 60 years, as she is passing, and he kisses her on the forehead and sings her favorite song as she leaves? Why? Because you and I were meant for an all-consuming love. We want it, we desire it, it captivates us, it makes us cry, and it captures our hearts. So we go from doing things in life and all the dull things and responsibilities for the first time. We feel something and it brings tears and joy and we want to share it with the world. You were created for an all-encompassing, encapturing love. And you and I see glimpses of it in social media, glimpses of it in other people, glimpses of it, maybe even in our marriage. But when you don't have it, you'll be forced to promote something that God gave to us to be a good thing to the level of the ultimate thing. When you feel dull and your heart feels hard and you want to feel something, you'll be forced to take control and promote a created thing to a God thing. But there is a cost when you promote something that is not God to the level of God because it will never meet up to it. It will disappoint you and then you will be heartbroken. So let's talk about this promotion, what we call the broken cisterns in our lives. Some will ask, Pastor Bobby, how do I know what these broken cisterns are? What these idolatry, idolatrous things, idols are in my life? And I always answer the same way. What do you get emotional about when it's taken away from you? Have you ever told a teenage boy they have to stop playing games? Ah! Ah! why right and they like literally dream okay maybe some of you are like that's my son he's 30 (laughs) like something inside of them is like I can't wait to leave your house so I can play video games all day something in them loves it so deeply they feel like emotions erupt when someone tells them you can't do that. If something doesn't go according to your plans and your desire, maybe you raised your kid for 30 years and you dreamed about him marrying a certain type of person and they bring home another person and you just can't take it. You wrap your head, you lay down on the couch and you display anger and displeasement and all sorts of things. Say, no, you cannot marry that. I hate that person, and I cannot believe you want to marry. Why? Because for you, that eruption of emotion is something that you love so deeply that when it doesn't go your way, you can't handle it. And yet God says, in my sovereign will, all things according to my plan, I am God and you are not. Keller is best at telling us what it is. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and your self-worth, 
It is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way that the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore, if you find that despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and your bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without it? It may be that until some inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your anger. The sin that is most destructive in your life right now is the one you are most defensive about. Does anger burst out when someone disrespects you at work and looks down on you? Basketball court, at home, when there's snide remarks about you being lazy. The root of your anger is this idolatry that you're defending. This is mine, I get to keep it, and this is what gives me life and joy. But you know what? Until you understand even deeper where this idolatry goes, you won't even begin to address it. And it begins in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? And here's the beginning, doubting of God's goodness, sovereignty, and love, and actually starting to break down your relationship with God. You shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden. Did he say that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. She made that up. He never said that. Lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And here's the phrase, you will be like God knowing good and evil. Don't let God determine your life. Don't let God tell you what to do. Be your own God. At the center of the idolatrous life, one that keeps giving into broken cistern, is a life where you reject God as the Lord of your life and you coronate yourself on the throne of your own life to say, I will determine what will convict me, what won't. I will determine what I love and what I don't. And I will determine what is good for me and what is not. I will determine it for my children. I will determine it for my work. I will determine it for everything around me. The genesis and the beginning of the dysfunction you have with all the people in the world, why every relationship is broken that you have, every marriage has fallen apart, is that you begin to believe that you know what is best for you, your marriage, your children, your work, and you say, God, step off. I need you for a time, but it's time for me to take my place. 
Do you say that out loud? No, are you crazy? No one goes like, time to coordinate myself, time to be the master of my life. No, no one does that. It's subtle. You cry out to God. You worship every Sunday. You go, oh, God, you're the lover of my soul. But as soon as you leave, why aren't you doing your homework? Do you want to be useless for the rest of your life? Because you control them to be who you want them to be. Dr. Keller said this, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, betray any allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. But you and I, when we take control away from God, we are terrible gods. You know why? Because we don't control anything. We don't even control ourselves well. Have you seen me at a buffet? Like... Every buffet I go into, I go, just a little bit. Start with the salad. Half of the plate is salad. Do you know what happens by the time I get to, like, the appetizer? I have to get another plate. And I always sit down with two large plates. I can't control myself over one meal. And yet... We have the audacity to tell God, let me control my children's life. Let me control my future. Let me control my spiritual life. Let me control actually other people's lives. Let me be so filled with my pride and my arrogance that I think I know how other people should worship. There's a super old movie called The Matrix. And it really, really hurts me to say that this movie is super old, right? Because I feel like I watched it last month. But when I talk to Gen Z, they're like, oh my God, I don't know what that is. Is that like 30 years old? I'm like, I think so. There's a scene right here where Cypher, who was part of the group of rebels who left everything, He's the betrayer. He's the Judas of Neo's group. And he gives into the machine's demands in order to turn over Neo, who is the savior of the group. And he's tired of living in actual reality, right? So he's like, you know what? I've done this for like eight, nine years, and I can't live in reality. So I need to go back to the matrix, which is make-believe. I want to be plugged back in as a battery for the robots. And he's just saying all of this stuff. And he says this. You know, I know this steak isn't real. It doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix, the code is telling my brain that it's juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realized? Ignorance is bliss. I don't care. 
It's more comfortable and easier to not challenge this heart that has gotten harder and harder and has taken control over my life again and again to make myself more comfortable in this world than to let God's word every week in and out convict me of where I am. Everyone in the matrix lived in ignorance is bliss. But everyone who was in the real world sacrificed everything to get people out to a life that was harder because it was real. For many of us, it's been a really long time since our last gospel awakening where our hearts felt so empty and lost and where we were repeating church and worship and reading the Bible and we have gone so cold and we're just raising our hands and saying the right things. So the allure of a broken cistern, it's a promise It's a promise of a momentary satisfaction from the dullness of where our heart is. A moment on social media, a moment out in the field, a moment on a date. John Gordon Gay explains this phenomenon clearly. Water is a life or death matter in Canaan. Fortunately, Jerusalem has a fountain of living water, the running water of Gihon Spring, on the east side of the hill on which the city is built. Towns are regularly built near such a water supply, but most springs dry up during the summer because of the lack of rainfall. So towns also build cisterns for collecting rain during the winter to keep them going through the summer until rains come again. Though running water is so much nicer than rainwater stored in the tank. So the first weird thing about Yahweh's people that he's describing in this text is that they have abandoned their source of running water for water from a cistern. When there is a broken cistern, it's so hard to fix that they would just let it be as water would drain through And as it's unhealthy because it's not running and it's tepid, God's image of us who come into service week after week with a hardened heart away from God, but our hands in worship, doing all the right things and serving, he's saying, you're drinking from the cistern when I am right here. This is what you were created for, with me, to be in love, to be captured. Not all emotions, but your heart to know how much I love you. So this unending desire for this kind of love, it's good. The heart that you have for this kind of all-consuming affection is a good thing. But these things, these created things are terrible masters because they will demand everything from you and then dump you aside when it's run its course. 
then you'll have to go after another thing. Stephen Smith points this out. We dig out cisterns that distract us from knowing God. It's a distraction. The most dangerous aspect of a broken pot that it is full for a moment. It is deceptive, giving the appearance of satisfaction, but leaky pots are only momentarily full. The slower the leak is, the more real the deception. That's right. Children, jobs, your spouse, it's good. And, the, and how good it is, it will leak slower than a broken relationship and a bad marriage, but it will be something that will eventually leak The greatest deception for us is that for a short time, we will be satisfied and we'll just move from one broken cistern to the next broken cistern while the river of life runs right next to us. And that breaks God's heart. Think about all the celebrities that we see. How many people on social media look at a celebrity and they say, wow, She is beautiful. He, wow, is beautiful. How many Korean dramas, all the, you know, sometimes I look at my wife and I'm like, Ryan Reynolds, you know, she's like watched every Ryan Reynolds movie. And I'm like, yeah, I can't compete with that. You know, like, and she has this person that she looks at. For all of us, we look at these celebrities who won basically the genetic lottery and they marry another person who won the genetic lottery and you go, man, and they stand up on couches and they jump up and go, I love her, you know, and they celebrate, they throw the biggest wedding, there's swans like coming across and you're like, this is the greatest wedding, we're addicted to it. Then two years later, irreconcilable differences. Then the next person, then the next person, then the next person. And you go, that was my ideal person in looks. And she seems so fun. Why did their marriage break? Because you see, broken cisterns last for a short time. But you will always have to move to the next one. It's the truth. So what now? I know it sounded a little bleak, but what now? So let me get to the joy. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. You have played the harlot, can't say the word still, with many lovers. And the question asked, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. The question asked whether we will return to God after giving our hearts over to other lovers over and over and over again. And the most amazing gospel news is included in this text with the understanding that you yourselves won't. The best of us, the most Christian of us, we will run from broken cistern after broken cistern throughout our life. 
Jeremiah, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from Luke 15, every part of the Bible that we love, it is God who pursues an unfaithful lover. Because for us, when we read this, we feel convicted and we feel broken over it. And our expectation is that it is up to us to run back to God, to leave our lovers. But what God is saying here is that, will you return to me? You won't. You'll keep going to lover, to lover, to lover. But I will run after my unfaithful bride. The entire book of Hosea is written for this very clause. That God is faithful to his unfaithful bride. Jesus died the death that we deserve for our betrayal of this God. He was rejected as a bride who cheated so that we can be looked upon as the most beautiful bride to him in Christ. And do you know what? It's not going to be guilt and shame of how much you want to love God that's going to bring you back to God. He says, it is my kindness in your infidelity that will bring you back to me in worship. So lay aside all the guilt and shame you feel that you haven't loved God enough, you haven't done enough, you don't care enough. But hear from today's text that he is pursuing you because he desires a love relationship with you here and then when this life ends for all eternity. The disappointment you feel with your husband who is broken and has failed you, he wants to meet those needs himself because he is the faithful, loving bridegroom. For all the Bridges members here who are still, you know, holding on and you're fighting for that love, we'll have a dating seminar and get you encouraged up to, you know, ask someone out. But Dr. Keller speaks clearly so that your expectations are just normalized, right? Because here he is. If you love anything in this world more than God, you will crush that object under the weight of your expectations. If you get married as Jacob did, putting the weight of all your deepest hopes and longings on the person that you are marrying, you are going to crush him or her with your expectations. It will distort your life and your spouse's life in a hundred ways. No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all that it needs. If we look to some created thing to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. The second thing that he addresses are those of us who love God. Maybe you are now determined, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. This is God's calling for me. Maybe those of you who you see ministry as the main thing that you have surrendered and given all your life to, 
especially for denominations like PCA, faithful to Scripture, right, reformed in faith. He addresses us. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. Another form of idolatry within religious communities turns spiritual gifts and ministry success into a counterfeit God. Another kind of religious idolatry has to do with moral living itself. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. Making an idol out of doctrinal accuracy, ministry success, or moral rectitude leads to constant internal conflict, arrogance, and self-righteousness, and oppression of those whose views differ. We are an idol-making factory that will turn everything into a broken cistern. All the good things into a broken cistern. So you and I, there is only one lover of our soul that will consume all of our hearts and give us hope even in the midst of our failures. You and I were meant for the greatest love of all time, not to replace it with broken cisterns. Let's pray. Let me ask you, what thing, when touched, brings out a big emotion Anger, sadness. You can't control yourself when somebody touches this thing. A child, its success, spouse, your future, your job. It is a clear indicator of an idol for you. Your worth your joy tied directly to it. We will all go from one to the next. We will try to prove to the world our worth at our jobs before the world. But you were meant for the single greatest love. Can we take time and ask God, God, would you reveal the idols that I have surrendered my heart to? Would you bring me to repentance because of your kindness? And would you restore unto me the joy of my salvation? Let's pray that together. Lord God, over and over again for the rest of our lives. We're looking for meaning, for joy, our worth 
in something you gave to us as a gift and we've elevated it to the level of you. And we're paying for it. Our hearts are getting harder for it. Holy Spirit, would you bring our hearts to a tenderness and renew our affection for you? May we, Lord God, respond to your grace and your kindness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you please rise and respond in worship?